Section 4 of The Most Extraordinary Trial of William Palmer by Anonymous. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Second day, May the 15th. Among the distinguished persons present were the Earl of Derby, Earl Grey, Lord W. Lennox, Lord G. G. Lennox, Lord H. Lennox, etc. The learned judges, Lord Chief Justice Campbell, and Mr. Baron Alderson, accompanied by the recorder, the sheriffs, the under-sheriffs, and several members of the court of aldermen, took their seats on the bench at ten o'clock. The prisoner was then placed at the bar. The expression of his countenance was sadder and more subdued than on the preceding day. He maintained his usual tranquillity of demeanour, seldom changing his position, and gazing steadfastly at the witnesses. The same counsel were again in attendance. The Attorney-General, Mr. E. James, Q.C., Mr. Bodkin, Mr. Wellesby, and Mr. Huddleston for the Crown, Mr. Sergeant Shee, Mr. Grove, Q.C., Mr. Gray, and Mr. Keneally for the prisoner. The jury, who had been all night at the London Coffee House, were conducted into court by the officer who had them in charge. Elizabeth Mills, who was under examination the previous evening, was again placed in the witness-box. She deposed as follows. I had been engaged at the Talbot Arms for about three years previous to Cook's death. Cook first came to that inn in the month of May 1855, and was off and on for some months. I never heard him complain of any illness during that time, except of an affection in his throat. I heard him complain of a sore throat two or three months before his death. He said it resulted from a cold. He took a gargle for it. I believe he had it from Mr. Thirlby. I did not observe any sores about his mouth. I never heard him complain of a difficulty in swallowing. I have seen him with a loaded tongue occasionally, but I never heard him complain of a sore tongue, nor have I heard of caustic being applied to his tongue. It was a month, if not more, before his death that I heard him say that he had a sore throat. I never knew him to take medicine before his last illness. He had a slight cough through cold, but never to my knowledge a violent one. He had not been ailing just before he went to Shrewsbury. On his return from Shrewsbury he complained of being poorly. I left my situation at Christmas and went to my home in the Potteries. Since then I have been in another situation which I left in February. I have seen Mr. Stevens, Mr. Cook's father-in-law, since I have been in London. I cannot say how many times I have seen him, but it is not more than six or seven times. Sometimes we conversed together in a private room. He only came to see whether I liked the place or whether I liked London. We used to converse together about Mr. Cook's death. I have talked to him about Mr. Cook's death at Rugeley. I cannot remember anything else that we talked about, except the death. He has never given me a farthing of money or promised to get me a place. I saw Mr. Stevens last Tuesday at Dolly's Hotel, where I had been in service. Lavinia Barnes was with us. She was the waitress at the Talbot Arms when Mr. Cook died. Two other persons were present, Mr. Hatton, the chief officer of Rugeley, and Mr. Gardner, an attorney at the same place. Mr. Cook's death may have been mentioned at the meeting. Other things were talked of, which I do not wish to mention. Sergeant Shee, but you must mention them. Witness, I cannot remember what they were, 
I don't know whether we talked about the trial. They did not ask me what I could prove. My deposition was not read over to me, and Mr. Stevens did not talk to me about the symptoms that were exhibited by Mr. Cook before his death. I had seen Mr. Hatton a few times before. I saw him at Dolly's. He merely dined there. I cannot remember whether he spoke to me about Cook's death. He might have done so. I cannot remember whether he did or not. I know he asked me how I did. A laugh. I saw Mr. Gardiner once at Dolly's, and once in the street, and I swear these were the only occasions I ever saw him. I never went with him to a solicitor's office. At present I am living with my mother at Rugeley. Before that I have been living among my friends. I know a man named Dutton. He is a cousin of mine in the potteries. I left Dolly's of my own accord because I did not like the place. I can read, and I read the newspapers. I have heard of the case of a person named Dove, who was supposed to have murdered his wife at Leeds. I merely heard that it was another strychnine case, but the symptoms of strychnine were not mentioned. I will swear that I mentioned twitching to the coroner. If I did not use the exact word, I said something to the same effect. I will swear that I have used the word twitching before I came to London. The words twitching and jerking were not first suggested to me. I did not say anything about the broth having made me sick before the coroner, because it did not occur to me. I did tell the coroner that I tasted the broth, and that I did not observe anything particular about it. I was examined several times, and I was questioned particularly upon the subject of the broth, and I said on one occasion that I thought the broth was very good. I did not at the time think it was the broth that had caused the sickness. I was so ill that I was obliged to go to bed, but I could not at all account for it. I only took two tablespoonfuls, and the sickness came on in about half an hour. I never knew of Mr. Cook taking coffee in bed before those occasions. I have said that Mr. Palmer ordered coffee for Cook. I have no doubt that is correct. I cannot remember so well today as I did yesterday. I cannot remember whether I told the coroner that I had not seen Mr. Palmer when I gave the deceased the coffee. I don't remember whether I had said anything before the coroner about seeing a box of pills in the deceased's bedroom on the Monday night, and that Palmer was in the room at the time. Perhaps I was not asked the question. I did nothing but answer questions that were put to me. I am sure that Palmer was in the room on that night. I remember that he brought a jar of jelly, and I opened it. I swear that the deceased told me that the pills Palmer had given him had made him ill. I did not say this before the coroner. I was asked some questions by Dr. Collier with regard to what I had stated to the coroner, and I said that my evidence had been altered, as some things had occurred to me since, and I had made another statement to a gentleman. I gave this additional statement to a gentleman at Dolly's. I don't know who the gentleman was. I did not ask him, and he did not tell me. He did not ask me many questions. He put a few to me and wrote down my answers. He mentioned Mr. Stevens's name. Mr. Stevens was there. Sergeant She, why did you not tell me that? Because you did not ask me. A laugh. Cross-examination continued. I did not tell the coroner that Mr. Cook was beating the bedclothes on the Monday night. I did say that he sometimes threw his head back and then would raise himself up again and I believe I also said that he could hardly speak for shortness of breath. I did not say that he called murder twice, and I do not remember saying that he twitched while I was rubbing his hands, 
I did not say anything about toast and water being given to Mr. Cook by order of Palmer in a spoon, or that he snapped at the spoon and bit it so hard that it was difficult to get it out of his mouth. The Lord Chief Justice here interposed and intimated his opinion that it would be a fairer course to read the witnesses' depositions. The other judges concurred. The Attorney General said he should have interposed, but it was his intention to adduce evidence to show the manner in which the case was conducted by the coroner, and that he was expostulated with upon omitting to put proper questions, and also omitting to take down the answers that were given. Cross-examination continued. I should have answered all those questions if they had been put to me. I was not purposely recalled to state the symptoms of the deceased in the presence of Dr. Taylor. When the prisoner came to the Talbot on the Tuesday night, he had a plaid dressing-gown on, but I cannot say whether he had a cap or not. I did not observe that the prisoner appeared at all confused at the time he was examining the clothes and the bed of the deceased. A model of the prisoner's house and of the hotel was here produced. The deposition of the witness was put in and read for the purpose of showing that the statements made by her in the examination on Wednesday were omitted when she was examined by the coroner. The witness was re-examined by Mr. E. James. I was examined on a great many different days by the coroner. I was not asked to describe all the symptoms I saw. The coroner himself put the questions to me, and his clerk took down the answers. I merely answered the questions, and I was not told to describe all I saw. The coroner asked me if the broth had any effect upon me, and I said, not that I was aware of. I don't know what brought the sickness to my mind afterwards, but I think that someone else in the house brought the fact to my memory. I certainly did vomit after I took the broth, and was obliged to go to bed. I am quite sure the deceased told me that it was the pills Palmer had given him that had made him ill. When Mr. Collier came to see me, he said that he was for the Crown, and he then asked me questions about the inquest and the death of Mr. Cook. I answered all the questions he put to me, and he took them down in writing and carried the statement away with him. Two other persons waited outside the house. I am engaged to be married to one of the Duttons. Sergeant Shee, did not Dr. Collier tell you that he was neither for the Crown nor for the defence, but for the truth? Witness. No, what he said was that he was for the Crown, but what he desired above all things was to know the truth, and that he asked me to tell him without fear, favour, or affection. Mr. Gardner, examined by the Attorney General. I am a member of the firm of Gardner and Company of Rugeley. I acted in this matter for the firm of Cookson and Company, the solicitors of Mr. Stevens, the father-in-law of Cook. I attended the inquest on the body of Cook, and occasionally put questions to the witnesses. Mr. Ward, an attorney, was the coroner. He put questions to the witnesses, and his clerk took down the answers. The inquest lasted five days, and several times upon each day I expostulated with the coroner on account of his omitting to put questions. Mr. Sergeant Shee submitted that what was said by the coroner was no evidence against the prisoner. The Attorney General, it is not intended as evidence against the prisoner, but to rebut the effect of evidence that you have put in. I will ask, had you occasion to expostulate with the coroner as to the omission of his clerk to take down the answers of witnesses? Mr. Sergeant Shee, I object to the question being put in that form. The Attorney General, 
Did you observe that the clerk omitted to take down the answers of Elizabeth Mills? Not in reference to that particular case. Mr. Baron Alderson. Her account of the matter is that the questions were not put. The Attorney General. Did Dr. Taylor object that questions were not put which ought to have been put? I do not recollect it. Lord Campbell. It is not suggested, as I understand, that the coroner refused to correct any mistakes that were made. The Attorney General. I am prepared to show that there was such misconduct on the part of the coroner as led to expostulation. Mr. Sergeant Shee. Don't state that unless you are going to prove it. The Attorney General. It is suggested that a witness has given evidence here which she did not give before the coroner. My object is to show, first, that questions were not put to her, which might and ought to have been put, secondly, that her answers to other questions were not taken down. Lord Campbell held that the evidence was not admissible. Witness, cross-examined by Sergeant Shee. The jury put a great many questions. Re-examined. The jury made very strong observations as to the necessity of putting questions. The Attorney General. Did they assign any reason for interfering when they put questions? Mr. Sergeant Shee objected to this question on the ground that it did not arise out of his cross-examination. Lord Campbell. My learned brethren think that evidence upon this point is not admissible. Mr. Justice Cresswell said the depositions which had been put in did not show that any questions had been put by the jurymen. If they had contained such questions, they would have shown the motive of the jury in putting them, but the court was left totally in the dark as to whether questions had been put by the coroner or any other person. For anything that appeared to the contrary, the witnesses might have made a voluntary statement without any questions at all being put to them. No foundation was laid, therefore, for the Attorney-General's question. Mr. Baron Alderson concurred. Mrs. Anne Brooks, examined by the Attorney-General. I live at Manchester. I am in the habit of attending races. I was at Shrewsbury Races in November 1855. I saw Palmer there. On the 14th, Wednesday, about 8 o'clock in the evening, I met him in the street and asked him whether he thought his horse, Chicken, would win. He desired me, if I heard anything further about a horse belonging to Lord Derby, which was also to run, to call and tell him on the following day. I went to the Raven to see him at half-past ten o'clock on the Thursday evening. Some friends waited for me in the road. I went upstairs and asked a servant to tell Palmer that I wished to speak to him. The servant said he was there. At the top of the stairs there are two passages, one facing the other, to the left. I saw Palmer standing by a small table in the passage. He had a tumbler-glass in his hand, in which there appeared to be a small quantity of water. I did not see him put anything into it. There was a light between him and me, and he held it up to the light. He said to me, I will be with you presently. He saw me the moment I got to the top of the stairs. He stood at the table a minute or two longer with the glass in his hand, holding it up to the light once or twice, and now and then shaking it. I made an observation about the fineness of the weather. The door of the sitting-room, which I supposed was unoccupied, was partially open, and he went into it, taking the glass with him. In two or three minutes he came out again with the glass. What was in the glass was still the colour of water. 
he then carried it into his own sitting-room the door of which was shut he afterwards came out and brought me a glass with brandy and water in it it might have been the same glass i had some of the brandy and water it produced no unpleasant consequences we had some conversation about the races in the course of it he said he should go back to his own horse chicken i was present at the race when chicken ran and lost cross-examined by mr sergeant shee i am married brooks is the name of my husband he never goes with me to races i live with him i don't attend many races in the course of a year my husband has a high appointment and does not sanction my going to races a great number of racing men were ill at shrewsbury on the wednesday there was a wonder as to what had caused their illness and something was said about the water being poisoned people were affected by sickness and purging i knew some persons who were so affected the passage in which i saw palmer holding the glass led to a good many rooms i think it was lighted by gas i supposed that he was mixing some cooling drink re-examined i was not examined before the coroner the brandy and water which palmer gave me was cold i had been on friendly terms with him i had known him a number of years as a racing man lavinia barnes examined by mr e james in november eighteen fifty five i was a waitress at the talbot arms i knew palmer and cook cook called there on the twelfth monday as he was going to the races he did not complain of illness i saw him when he returned on the fifteenth on the friday he came between nine and ten o'clock in the evening after dining with palmer he spoke to me he was sober on the saturday i saw him twice some broth was sent over and taken up to him by me he could not take it he was too sick i carried it down and put it in the kitchen i afterwards saw palmer and told him cook was too sick to take it palmer said he must have it elizabeth mills afterwards took it up again she was taken ill with violent vomiting on the sunday between twelve and one o'clock she went to bed and did not come downstairs till four or five o'clock i saw some broth on that day in the kitchen it was in a sick cup with two handles not belonging to the house i did not see it brought the cup went back to palmer's on the monday morning between seven and eight o'clock i saw palmer and he told mills he was going to london i also saw cook during the day sanders came to see him and i took him up some brandy and water i slept that night in the next room to cook's palmer came between eight and nine o'clock in the evening and went upstairs but i did not see whether he went into cook's room about twelve o'clock i was in the kitchen when cook's bell rang violently i went upstairs cook was very ill and asked me to send for palmer he screamed out murder he exclaimed that he was in violent pain that he was suffocating his eyes were wild-looking standing a great way out of his head he was beating the bed with his arms he cried out christ have mercy on my soul i never saw a person in such a state having called up mills i left to send boots for palmer palmer came and i again went into the room cook was then more composed he said oh doctor i shall die palmer replied don't be alarmed my lad i saw cook drink a darkish mixture out of a glass i don't know who gave it to him i both saw and heard him snap at the glass he brought up the draught i left him between twelve and one o'clock when he was much more composed on the tuesday he seemed a little better 
At night, a little before twelve o'clock, the bell rang again. I was in the kitchen. Mills went upstairs. I followed her and heard Cook screaming, but did not go into the room. I stood outside the door and saw Palmer come. He had been fetched. I said as he passed me, Mr. Cook is ill again. He said, Oh, is he? and went into the room. He was dressed in his usual manner and wore a black coat and a cap. I remained on the landing when Palmer came out. As he went downstairs, Mills asked him how Cook was. He said to her and to me, He is not so bad by fifty parts as he was last night. I heard Cook ask to be turned over before I went in, while Palmer was there. I went in after Palmer had left, but I came out before Cook died. After he died on the Tuesday, I went into the room and found Palmer with a coat in his hand. He was clearing out the pockets of the coat and looking under the bolster. I said, Oh, Mr. Cook can't be dead. Palmer said, He is. I knew he would be, and then left the room. I saw him on the Thursday morning. He came into the body of the hall and asked for the key of Mr. Cook's bedroom, in which the body was lying. The key was in the bar. He said he wanted some books and papers and a paper knife, for they were to go back to the stationers, or else he would have to pay for them. I went with him into the room. He then requested me to go to Miss Bond for some books. I went downstairs and fetched the books. When I returned, he was still in the room, looking for the paper knife on the top of the chest of drawers among books, papers, and clothes. He said, I can't find the knife anywhere. Miss Bond, the housekeeper, afterwards came up, and I left. On the Friday, between three and four o'clock, I saw Mr. Jones with Palmer. Jones said he thought Palmer knew where the betting book was. Palmer asked me to go and look for it, and said it was sure to be found, but it was not worth anything to anyone but Cook. Mills and I went up to look for it, but we could not find it. We searched everywhere, in the bed and all round the room, but not in the drawers. We went down and told Palmer and Jones that we could not find it. Palmer said, Oh, it will be found somewhere. I'll go with you and look myself. He did not go with us, but left the house. I did not see him come out of the room on the Thursday. There was no reason for our not looking in the drawers. Some people were in the room at the time, nailing the coughing. Cross-examined by Mr. Sergeant Shee cook had some coffee on the saturday between twelve and one i did not pay any particular attention to the time when palmer went up on the monday i am not sure it was before half-past nine but i am sure it was before ten i don't remember whether cook touched the glass from which he drank the mixture i think someone else was holding it there was some of cook's linen in several of the drawers there was a portmanteau containing other things besides those in the drawers there were dress clothes an overcoat and morning clothes the door was locked on the night of the death the women were sent for to lay out the corpse before it was light the undertaker went on the following morning and the door was locked after they left they came again on the thursday night had the key and went up by themselves the body was put into the coffin the day stevens was there the women were in the room with the undertakers when i looked for the book re-examined by the attorney-general the chambermaid and i were in and out of the room while the women were laying out the body but they were sometimes left alone i saw nothing of the book at that time i had seen it before in cook's hand but i don't remember seeing it in the room anne rowley examined by mr wellsby 
I live at Rugeley and have frequently been employed as charwoman by Palmer. On the Saturday before Cook died, Palmer sent me to Mr. Robinson's at the Albion Inn for a little broth for Cook. I fetched the broth, took it to Palmer's house, and put it to the fire in the back kitchen to warm. After doing so, I went about my work in other parts of the house. When the broth was hot, Palmer brought it to me in the kitchen and poured it into a cup. He told me to take it to the Talbot Arms for Cook, to ask if he would take a little bread or toast with it, and to say that Smith had sent it. By Lord Campbell. He did not say why I was to say that. Examination resumed. There is a Mr. Jeremiah Smith at Rugeley. He is called Jerry Smith. He is a friend of Palmer's. I took the broth to the Talbot Arms and gave it to Lavinia Barnes. Cross-examined by Sergeant Shee. Mr. Smith was in the habit of putting up at the Albion. He was friendly with Cook. Cook was to have dined with Smith that day, but was not able to go. Mrs. Robinson, the landlady of the Albion, made the broth, but I don't know by whose orders. By Lord Campbell. The broth was at the fire in Palmer's kitchen about five minutes. Charles Hawley, examined by Mr. Bodkin. I am a gardener living at Rugeley, and was occasionally employed by the prisoner in his garden. On the Sunday before Cook died, Palmer asked me to take some broth to Cook. That was at Palmer's house, where I was in the habit of going. It was between twelve and one o'clock. He gave me the broth in a small cup with a cover over it, and told me to take it to the Talbot Arms for Cook. I did so. I cannot say whether or not the broth was hot. I gave it to one of the servant girls at the Talbot Arms, but which I cannot say. The witness was not cross-examined. Sarah Bond, examined by Mr. Huddleston. In November last I was housekeeper at the Talbot Arms. I knew Cook. He stayed at the Talbot Arms. I remember his going to Shrewsbury Races on the 12th of November. He returned on the Thursday. I heard him say that he was very poorly. I did not see him on the Friday or Saturday. On Sunday I saw him about eight o'clock in the evening. He was in bed. He said that he had been very poorly, but was better. Very soon afterwards I saw Palmer. I asked him what he thought of Cook, and he replied that he was better. On Saturday night Smith had slept in the room with Cook. On the Sunday evening I asked Palmer if Cook would not want somebody with him that night, and Palmer replied that he was so much better that it would not be necessary that anyone should be with him. I asked if Daniel Jenkins, the boots, should sleep in the room. Palmer said that Cook was so much better he had much rather he did not. On the Monday morning, a little before seven o'clock, I saw Palmer again. He came into the kitchen to me. I asked him how Cook was. He said he was better, and requested me to make him a cup of coffee. He did not say anything about its strength. He remained in the kitchen, and I made the coffee and gave it to him. He told me that he was going to London, and that he had written for Mr. Jones to come to see Cook. On the Monday night, hearing from the waitress that Cook was ill, I went up to his room between eleven and twelve o'clock. When I went into the room, Cook was alone. He was sitting up in bed, resting on his elbow. He seemed disappointed, and said he did not want to see me, but Palmer. I went out onto the landing, and soon afterwards Palmer came. Palmer went into the room. 
I could not see what was done in the room. Palmer came out, went away for a few minutes, and then returned. After he came back, I heard that Cook had vomited. Cook said he thought he should die. Palmer cheered him up and said that he would do all he could to prevent it. When Palmer came out of the room again, I asked him if Cook had any relatives, and he said that he only had a stepfather. I saw Cook again between three and four o'clock on Tuesday. That was when Mr. Jones came. A little after six o'clock, I took some jelly up to Cook. He seemed very anxious for it, and said that he thought he should die. I thought he seemed better. I did not see him again alive. Between eight and nine o'clock on Wednesday morning, I locked the door of the room in which Cook's body lay. About nine o'clock I gave the key to Mr. Tolly, the barber, when he came to shave the corpse. On Thursday I gave it to Lavinia Barnes. After that I went up to the room and met Palmer coming out of it. After I came out, the door was locked, and I had the key. On Friday, when Mr. Stevens came, I gave the key to the undertaker. Cross-examined by Mr. Grove. The passengers by the express train from London arrived at Rugeley about ten o'clock in the evening. They come by fly from Stafford. William Henry Jones, examined by the Attorney General. I am a surgeon living at Lutterworth. I have been in practice fifteen years. I was acquainted with Cook, who from time to time resided at my house. I had been on terms of intimacy with him nearly five years. He was twenty-eight years of age when he died, and unmarried. He was originally educated for the law, but of late years had devoted himself to agriculture and the turf. The last year or two he had no farm. He kept racehorses and betted. I had known Palmer about twelve months. Lately Cook considered my house at Lutterworth as his home. I have attended him professionally. His health was generally good, but he was not very robust. He was a man of active habits. He both hunted and played cricket. In November last, he invited me to go to Shrewsbury to see his horse run, and I went. I spent Tuesday the 13th with him there. That was the day on which Polestar ran and won. I dined with Cook and other friends at the Raven Hotel, where he was staying. The horse having won, there was a little extra champagne drunk. We dined between six and seven o'clock, and the party broke up between eight and nine. Cook afterwards accompanied me round the town. We went to Mr. Frail's, who is clerk of the course. I saw Cook produce his betting book to Whitehouse, the jockey. He calculated his winnings on Polestar. There were figures in the book. Cook made a statement as to his winnings. Mr. Sergeant Shee objected to this statement being given in evidence, and the Attorney-General, therefore, did not ask any questions as to its purport. Examination resumed. I left the Raven Hotel at ten o'clock. Cook was then at the door. He was not at all the worse for liquor. He was in his usual health. On the following Monday I received a letter from Palmer. This letter, which was put in and read, was as follows. Quote, My dear sir, Mr. Cook was taken ill at Shrewsbury and obliged to call in a medical man. Since then he has been confined to his bed here with a very severe bilious attack, combined with diarrhoea. I think it desirable for you to come and see him as soon as possible. November 18th, 1855. William Palmer. End quote. Examination resumed. 
on that day monday i was very unwell on the next day i went to rugeley i arrived at the talbot arms about half-past three o'clock in the afternoon and immediately went up to cook's room he said that he was very comfortable but he had been very ill at shrewsbury he did not detail the symptoms but said that he was obliged to call in a medical man palmer came in i examined cook in palmer's presence he had a natural pulse i looked at his tongue which was clean i said it was hardly the tongue of a bilious diarrhoea attack palmer replied you should have seen it before i did not then prescribe for cook in the course of the afternoon i visited him several times he changed for the better his spirits and pulse both improved i gave him at his request some toast and water and he vomited there was no diarrhoea the toast and water was in the room mr bamford came in the evening about seven o'clock palmer had told me that mr bamford had been called in mr bamford expressed his opinion that cook was going on very satisfactorily we were talking about what he was to have and cook objected to the pills of the previous night palmer was there all the time cook said the pills made him ill i do not remember to whom he addressed this observation we three palmer bamford and myself went out upon the landing palmer proposed that mr bamford should make up some morphine pills as before at the same time requesting me not to mention to cook what they contained as he objected to the morphine so much mr bamford agreed to this and he went away i went back to cook's room and palmer went with me during the evening i was several times in cook's room he seemed very comfortable all the evening there was no more vomiting nor any diarrhoea but there was a natural motion of the bowels i observed no bilious symptoms about cook by lord campbell did he appear to have recently suffered from a bilious attack no examination resumed palmer and i went to his house about eight o'clock i remained there about half an hour and then returned to cook i next saw palmer in cook's room at nearly eleven o'clock he had brought with him a box of pills he opened the paper on which the direction was written in my presence that paper was round the box he called my attention to the paper saying what an excellent handwriting for an old man i did not read the direction but looked at the writing which was very good palmer proposed to cook that he should take the pills cook protested very much against it because they had made him so ill the previous night palmer repeated the request several times and at last cook complied with it and took the pills the moment he took them he vomited into the utensil palmer and myself at palmer's request searched in it for the pills to see whether they were returned we found nothing but toast and water i do not know when cook had drunk the toast and water but it was standing by the bedside all the evening the vomiting could not have been caused by the contents of the pills nor by the act of swallowing after vomiting cook laid down and appeared quiet before palmer came cook had got up and sat in a chair his spirits were very good he was laughing and joking talking of what he should do with himself during the winter after he had taken the pills i went downstairs to my supper and returned to his room at nearly twelve o'clock his room was double bedded and it had been arranged that i should sleep in it that night i talked to cook for a few minutes and then went to bed 
when i last talked to him he was rather sleepy but quite as well as he had been during the evening there was nothing about him to excite any apprehensions i had been in bed about ten minutes and had not gone to sleep when he suddenly started up in bed and called out doctor get up i am going to be ill ring the bell and send for palmer i rang the bell the chambermaid came and cook called out to her fetch mr palmer he asked me to give him something i declined and said palmer will be here directly cook was then sitting up in bed the room was rather dark and i did not observe anything particular in his countenance he asked me to rub the back of his neck i did so i supported him with my arm there was a stiffness about the muscles of his neck palmer came very soon two or three minutes at the utmost after the chambermaid went for him he said i never dressed so quickly in my life i did not observe how he was dressed he gave cook two pills which he told me were ammonia pills cook swallowed them directly he did so he uttered loud screams threw himself back in the bed and was dreadfully convulsed that could not have been the result of the action of the pills last taken cook said raise me up i shall be suffocated that was at the commencement of the convulsions which lasted five or ten minutes the convulsions affected every muscle of the body and were accompanied by stiffening of the limbs i endeavoured to raise cook with the assistance of palmer but found it quite impossible owing to the rigidity of the limbs when cook found we could not raise him up he asked me to turn him over he was then quite sensible i turned him on to his side i listened to the action of his heart i found that it gradually weakened and asked palmer to fetch some spirits of ammonia to be used as a stimulant palmer went to his house and fetched the bottle he was away a very short time when he returned the pulsations of the heart were gradually ceasing and life was almost extinct cook died very quietly a short time afterwards from the time he called to me to that of his death there elapsed about ten minutes or a quarter of an hour he died of tetanus which is a spasmodic affection of the muscles of the whole body it causes death by stopping the action of the heart the sense of suffocation is caused by the contraction of the respiratory muscles the room was so dark that i could not observe what was the outward appearance of cook's body after death when he threw himself back in the bed he clinched his hands and they remained clinched after death when i was rubbing his neck his head and neck were unnaturally bent back by the spasmodic action of the muscles after death his body was so twisted or bowed that if i had placed it upon the back it would have rested upon the head and the feet by lord campbell when did you first observe that twisting or bowing when cook threw himself back in bed examination resumed the jaw was affected by the spasmodic action palmer remained half an hour or an hour after cook's death i suggested that we should have some women to lay cook out i left the room to speak to the housekeeper about this seeing two maids on the landing i sent them into the room where palmer was with cook's body i went downstairs and spoke to the housekeeper and then returned to the bedroom when i went back palmer had cook's coat in his hand he said to me you as his nearest friend had better take possession of his effects i took cook's watch and his purse containing five sovereigns and five shillings which was all i could find i saw no betting-book nor any papers or letters belonging to cook i found no bank-notes before palmer left 
did he say anything to you on the subject of affairs between himself and cook he did soon after cook's death he said it is a bad thing for me that mr cook is dead as i am responsible for three thousand pounds or four thousand pounds and i hope mr cook's friends will not let me lose it if they do not assist me all my horses will be seized he said nothing about securities or papers i was present when mr stevens cook's stepfather came palmer said that if mr stevens did not bury cook he should i did not recollect that there was any question about burying him mr stevens palmer mr bamford and myself dined together after dinner mr stevens in palmer's presence asked me to go and look for cook's betting book i went to look for it and palmer followed me the night that cook died the betting book was mentioned what was said about it palmer said that it would be of use to no one what led to this my taking possession of the effects did you make any observation about the book i cannot recollect did you find it no did you make any remark no particular remark did palmer know what you were looking for yes how i said where is the betting book upon that he said it is of no use to any one you are sure he said that yes when i went to look for the book at mr stevens request palmer followed me i looked for the book for two or three minutes but did not find it i told the maid-servants that i could not find it palmer returned with me to the dining-room and i told mr stevens that i could not find the book by lord campbell when palmer mr bamford and myself held the consultation on the landing on the tuesday night nothing was said about the spasms of the night before cross-examined by mr sergeant shee i am a regular medical practitioner and i have for fifteen years practised medicine as a means of gaining a living i am a licentiate of the apothecary's company and have endeavoured both as a young man and since to qualify myself for my profession when i saw cook his throat was slightly ulcerated but he could swallow very well although with a little pain i know that he had applied caustic to his tongue but he had ceased to do so for two months he did not after that continue to complain of pain in his throat or tongue i saw him frequently during the races and never heard him express any apprehension about spots which appeared upon his body although he did express apprehensions of secondary symptoms resulting from syphilis i am not aware that at the time he died he was suffering from the venereal disease but i know that he had it about a twelve month ago he had been reduced in circumstances some time before he died but he was redeeming them i do not know that he was frequently in want of small sums of money i believe that he owned a mare in conjunction with palmer named pyrene which was under the care of sanders the trainer the race which polestar won was a matter of great importance to the deceased he was much excited at the race and more particularly so after it deceased was a very temperate man and did not exceed in wine on the evening of the race the next i heard of him was through the letter from palmer palmer knew perfectly well who i was and that i was in practice as a surgeon at lutterworth when i saw deceased he objected to take morphia pills because they had made him ill the night before he did not say that dr savage had forbidden him to take the morphia but he said that he had been directed not to take mercury or opium the effect of morphia would be to soothe and to cause slight constipation 
when i saw him and he roused up a little he said palmer give me the remedy you gave me last night i rubbed the deceased's neck for about five minutes he died very quietly i had seen cases of tetanus before i think i mentioned tetanus at the inquest i am sure if you refer to my depositions you will find that i mentioned tetanus and convulsions both the depositions were referred to and there was no mention of tetanus in them witness continued however i am sure that i mentioned tetanus the attorney-general i must set this right i have here the original deposition and i find the matter stands thus there were strong symptoms of then there is a word compression struck out and then there is the word tetanus also struck out it is evident that the clerk did not know the meaning of what he was writing and then the words violent convulsions are added so that the sentence stands there were strong symptoms of violent convulsions by mr sergeant she i also said before the coroner that i could not tell the cause of death and that I imagined at the time that it was from over-excitement. The Lord Chief Justice said that the learned counsel must not read detached portions of the depositions. The whole must be read. The depositions were accordingly read by the clerk of the arraigns. Cross-examination continued. I do not recollect that I ever said that deceased died of epilepsy. Dr. Bamford said that he died in an apoplectic fit and i said that i thought he did not i said that i thought it was more like an epileptic fit than an apoplectic fit i do not know mr pratt but i took a letter from him to cook cook did not open it but said i know the contents of it let it be till to-morrow morning i have seen palmer's racing establishment at rugeley i saw a number of mares in foal and others in the paddock and some very valuable horses the stables were good and the establishment appeared to be a large and expensive one re-examined by the attorney-general i am not a good judge of the value of racing horses but i understand other horses very well i have only seen one case of tetanus and that case resulted from a wound the patient in that case lasted three days before death ensued i am satisfied that the death of mr cook did not arise from epilepsy in epilepsy consciousness is lost but there is no rigidity or convulsive spasm of the muscles the symptoms are quite different i am equally certain that death was not the result of apoplexy lavinia barnes was recalled at the instance of mr sergeant she and in answer to the learned sergeant she said on monday morning mr cook said to me that he had been very ill on sunday night just before twelve o'clock and that he had rung the bell for someone to come to him but he thought that they had all gone to bed elizabeth mills recalled by the attorney-general and examined on the same point i remember on monday morning asking mr cook how he was and he said that he had been disturbed in the night adding i was just mad for two minutes i said why did you not ring the bell and he replied i thought you would all be fast asleep and would not hear me the illness passed away and i managed to get over it without he also said he thought he had been disturbed by the noise of a quarrel in the street dr henry savage physician of seven gloucester place examined by the attorney-general i knew john parsons cook he had been in the habit of consulting me professionally during the last four years 
he was a man not of robust constitution but his general health was good he came to me in may eighteen fifty five but i saw him about november of the year before and early in the spring of eighteen fifty five in the spring of eighteen fifty five the old affair indigestion was one cause of his visiting me and he had some spots upon his body about which he was uneasy he had also two shallow ulcers on his tongue which corresponded with two bad teeth he said that he had been under a mild mercurial course and he imagined that those spots were syphilitic i thought they were not and i recommended the discontinuance of mercury i gave him quinine as a tonic and an aperient composed of cream of tartar magnesia and sulphur i never at any time gave him antimony under the treatment which i prescribed the sores gradually disappeared and they were quite well by the end of may i saw him however frequently in june and he still felt some little anxiety about the accuracy of my opinion if any little spot made its appearance he came to me and i also was anxious on the subject as my opinion differed from that of another medical man in london every time he came to me i examined him carefully there were no indications of a syphilitic character about the sores and there was no ulceration of the throat but one of the tonsils was slightly enlarged and tender i saw him last alive and carefully examined him either on the third or fifth of november there was in my judgment no venereal taint about him at the time cross-examined by mr sergeant shee i do not think that the deceased was fond of taking mercury before i advised him against it but he was timid on the subject of his throat and was apt to take the advice of any one no i don't think that he would take quack medicines i don't think he was so foolish as that charles newton called and examined by mr james q c i am assistant to mr salt a surgeon at rugeley i know the prisoner william palmer i remember monday the nineteenth of november i saw palmer that evening at mr salt's surgery about nine o'clock i was alone when he came there he asked me for three grains of strychnine and i weighed it accurately and gave it to him enclosed in a piece of paper he said nothing further but good night and took it away with him i knew him to be a medical man and gave it him made no charge for it the whole transaction did not occupy more than two or three minutes i again saw palmer on the following day between eleven and twelve o'clock he was then at the shop of mr hawkins a druggist he asked me how i was and put his hand upon my shoulder and said he wished to speak with me accordingly i went out into the street with him and he then asked me when mr edwin salt was going to his farm the farm in question was at a place about fourteen miles distant from rugeley palmer had nothing whatever to do with that farm but mr salt's going there was a rumour of the town while we were talking a mr brassington came up and spoke to me and during our conversation palmer went into hawkins shop again palmer came out of the shop a second time while i was still talking to brassington i am not sure whether palmer spoke to me at that time but he went past me in the direction of his own house which is about two hundred yards from hawkins i then went into hawkins shop where i saw roberts mr hawkins apprentice and i had some conversation with him about palmer i knew a man named thirlby who had been an assistant and a partner of palmer 
Palmer usually dealt with Thirlby for his drugs. In fact, Thirlby dispensed Palmer's medicine. On Sunday, the 25th of November, about 7 o'clock in the evening, I was sent for and went to Palmer's house. I found Palmer when I got there in his kitchen. He was sitting by the fire, reading. He asked me how I was, and to have some brandy and water. No one else was present. He asked me what was the dose of strychnine to give to kill a dog. I told him a grain. He asked me what would be the appearance of the stomach after death. I told him that there would be no inflammation, and that I did not think it would be found. Upon that he snapped his finger and thumb in a quiet way, and exclaimed, as if communing with himself, "'That's all right.' Sensation. He made some other remarks of a commonplace character, which I do not recollect. I was with him altogether about five minutes. On the following day, Monday the 26th of November, I heard that a post-mortem examination was to take place. I went to Dr. Bamford's house, intending to accompany him to the post-mortem, and I found Palmer there in the study. That was about ten o'clock in the day. Palmer asked me what I wanted. I told him that I had come to attend the post-mortem. He asked whether I thought Mr. Salt was going, and I replied that he was engaged and could not go. I took the necessary instruments with me, and went down to the Talbot Arms. Dr. Harland and Mr. Freer, a surgeon, practising at Rugeley, were both there. They went away, however, for a short time, and left Palmer and me together in the entrance of the hall at the Talbot Arms. He spoke to me. He said, "'It will be a dirty job. I will go and have some brandy.' I went with him to his house, which was just opposite. He gave me two wine-glasses of neat brandy, and he took the same quantity himself. He said, "'You'll find this fellow suffering from a diseased throat.' He has had syphilis, and has taken a great deal of mercury. I afterwards went over with Palmer to the post-mortem, and found the other doctors there. During the post-mortem, Palmer stood near to Dr. Bamford, against the fire. I was examined before the coroner, and did not state before that functionary that I had given Palmer three grains of strychnine on the night of the 19th of November. The first person that I told of it was Cheshire, the postmaster. Mr. Sergeant Shee objected to anything that this witness had said to Cheshire, being admitted as evidence against the prisoner. The court ruled in favour of the objection. Cross-examined by Mr. Grove, Q.C. It might have been a week or two or three days after I gave Palmer the strychnine that I first mentioned the occurrence to anyone. I think I may undertake to say that it was not a fortnight afterwards. Subsequently to the inquest, I was examined for the purpose of giving evidence on the part of the Crown. I cannot say how long after the inquest that was. When I was first examined on behalf of the Crown, I did not mention the three grains of strychnine, but I did mention the conversation about the poisoning of the dog. That was not the first time that I had mentioned that conversation, for I had mentioned it before to Mr. Salt, but I cannot tell how long before. I was examined twice for the purpose of the prosecution by the Crown. I did not mention Cook suffering from sore throat at the inquest, but I did mention the conversation which took place at Hawkins' shop. At that time I knew it had been alleged that Palmer had purchased strychnine at Hawkins's, and I presumed that my evidence was required with reference to that point. I first stated on Tuesday last, for the purpose of this prosecution, the fact of my having given Palmer three grains of strychnine. 
I cannot say whether in that examination I said that Palmer said, you will find this poor fellow suffering from a diseased throat. I don't know whether I said poor fellow or rich fellow. Do you not know that there is a difference in the expression fellow and poor fellow? I know that there is a difference between poor and rich. It is impossible to recollect all that I said upon every occasion. Re-examined by the Attorney General. I did not mention the circumstances of my having given the strychnine to Palmer, because Mr. Salt, my employer, and Palmer were not friends, and I thought it would displease Mr. Salt if he knew that I had let Palmer have anything. I first mentioned it to Boycott, the clerk of Mr. Gardner, the solicitor, at the Rugeley station, where I and a number of other witnesses were assembled for the purpose of coming to London. As soon as I arrived in London, Boycott took me to Mr. Gardner's. I communicated to him what I had to say, and I was then taken to the solicitor of the Treasury, and I made the same statement to him. Mr. Sergeant Shee, have you not given another reason for not mentioning the occurrence about the three grains of strychnine before, the reason being that you were afraid that you could be indicted for perjury? No, I did not give that as a reason, but I stated to a gentleman that a young man of Wolverhampton had been threatened to be indicted for perjury by George Palmer, because he had said at the inquest upon Walter Palmer that he had sold the prisoner prussic acid, and he had not entered it in the book and could not prove it. I stated at the time that George Palmer said he could be transported for it. I did not enter the gift of the three grains of strychnine from Mr. Salt's surgery in a book. The inquest upon Walter Palmer did not take place till five or six weeks after the inquest upon Cook. The court then adjourned at twenty-five minutes past six o'clock until the next day, the jury being conducted, as on the previous evening, to the London Coffee House in charge of the officers of the court. End of section four.